Hi, I'm Andrew Dubber, I'm Director of MTF Labs, and this is the MTF Podcast. If this is not your first encounter with MTF, then it should come as no surprise to you that the idea of combining art and science is something that's kind of a particular interest to the MTF community. If this is your first encounter with MTF, then welcome. We're really glad to have you with us. You join us at a really good moment. I want to introduce you to Ariane Koch. She's very much part of the MTF community and has been at the forefront of that intersection of art and science that's so important to us for quite some time. I first knew her as the Director of Arts at CERN, the European Organisation for Nuclear Research, home of the Large Hadron Collider, and some what you might think of as very sciencey research and activities. Ariane created the Arts at CERN initiative. She initiated Collide, a residency for up to three months for artists to work with the researchers at CERN, and a whole host of art commissions and exhibitions that brought painters, dancers, composers, writers, sculptors, video artists, and more to collaborate with particle physicists, nuclear engineers, and computer scientists. Ariane's a consultant and cultural strategist, producer and curator, science communication specialist, writer, speaker, and lecturer, leadership advisor, and coach, and a member of advisory boards and policy groups. She's someone who, to me, always seems filled with both wonder and purpose. Ariane Koch, thank you so much for joining us for the MTF podcast today. You're looking well. How's the pandemic treating you? Ah, it's treating me like everybody else, I think, is the answer to that. Uh, everybody else in the sense of emotional swings. Uh, not everybody else in the sense of everybody's got different um, concerns and different parameters and uh, you know, different social conditions. But yeah, I would say like everybody else, it's a, you know, not like everybody else, but for me, it's a seesaw, basically. Sometimes you're really loving being alone and having the chance to explore and discover and study and read. I've been doing so much reading, it's fantastic. And other moments you're like, where are the humans? <laughs> where are the humans? Where is the human connection? And it's really odd. Yeah, it's very odd to be reduce, reduced to the digital and uh, the flat. So being reduced to one dimension on a screen and for humans to become one dimensional is very odd. So you leave out all the kind of senses except for sight um, and listening, obviously. So what yeah, what does that leave us? Who are we without the other senses? Well, it's interesting that you uh, you pose these giant philosophical questions based on the sort of technologizing of, of human life, because that is kind of your job. You're, you're sort of an international strategic consultant, curator, writer, but all at the intersection of science and art. I, I guess the, the big question is, how does one become that? Uh, just curiosity. I think it's, I've just got phenomenal curiosity about the world and how it's shaped and works. And I'm always interested in the latest knowledge, the latest technology, and also the implications in particular uh, for humanity. What are the implications for humanity? Is it taking us further or is it a retrograde? And what is our role within uh, new knowledge? Are we the victims? Are we the co-partners? 
or are we the drivers? And if so, what are our drivers? Um, so it's all those questions again, which motivate me to be in this area. I mean, I just love new knowledge and new things. Do you have to sort of uh, bump up the science credentials with the arts credentials in parallel, or can you focus in one direction and look at the other one across the divide? Uh, I'm like you because I come from a broadcast background. So I was a broadcaster, I worked at the BBC, I was a producer for 16 years, a staff producer. So I was used to effortlessly moving across different ways of knowing um, and enjoying the different ways of knowing and enjoying the exploration of one day talking to Sarah Bluffer Hardy about the latest anthropology, uh, next day talking to Michio Kaku about his latest ideas regarding physics and some of the controversy that raised to, you know, so I'm used to that. And because of, because I see arts and science as being, and technology as being, new forms of knowledge and knowing and it's driven by ideas which are then implemented i guess i'm fearless because i love moving across them and i treat them all equally so i'm kind of a amateur really of everything you could say um, i'm definitely an amateur of everything i mean you know physicist my god it takes 25 years to be a physicist but it's the ideas, it's the ideas. For me, the ideas are the nexus of what I do. Well, all things nuclear seem to be a theme. You, you made a radio documentary about Chernobyl and you worked on nuclear testing in, uh, in Australia, but you ended up at CERN, which is where I originally know you from, sort of, I guess, 2013, 2012, somewhere around there, we, we sort of first encountered each other. Um, and you were the first arts director at a nuclear research facility. How, how does that become a thing? Uh, again, it's because I'm fearless, I think. <laughs> I mean, was it a job that you applied for or did you go and say what you really need is an arts director? Uh, well, basically, um, I won a Claw Fellowship for my work in culture, um, of, for the work I'd done at the BBC. Um, um, uh, and also for the work I'd done at the Avon Foundation for Creative Writing. And as part of the Claw Fellowship, um, they said you could go anywhere you like in the world for three months. And uh, I got offered wonderful three months uh, stagiaire posts in the US, in Canada, in the UK, and turned them all down. They were all with arts organisations. And everybody was like, why have you turned these all down? You're almost at the end of your fellowship. What are you doing? Why? You're mad. And I thought, oh, my goodness. So I literally took a bike ride. Um, I did a bicycle ride from my home to the British Library and thought, why have I turned all these amazing places down? Um, as I cycled, I did this kind of deep, <laughs> deep inward look and went, uh, what? What inspires me? And I went, oh, it's new knowledge. Uh, what makes me weird? I'm really into nuclear history. Um, what haven't you done? I've never gone subatomic. Where in the world is uh, at the cutting edge of all knowledge and technology at the moment? And I went, CERN. And then I remembered a conversation I had with a an amazing artist called Chris Drury, who's a land artist, an ecological artist. And he said he had gone to CERN on the way back from Antarctica 
and realized the connection between uh, Antarctica and CERN in a print where he showed the heartbeat of the ice in Antarctica, the frequency and the frequency of the Large Hadron Collider, which is recreating the conditions of nature. And he said, I think something wonderful there could happen. And literally, it was an epiphany on a bicycle. <laughs> and I jumped off my bicycle, ran two floors up the British Library stairs, looked up CERN to see what they'd done with the arts. And they had they'd done a concert with Philip Glass to mark the first turn on the Large Hadron Collider. I could see people who'd gone in and out, but there was no structured programme. And literally, I wrote a 10 page pitch to CERN saying, You're at this amazing point in your history. You're just about to switch on the, the LHC to discover the Higgs boson. Uh, physics, basically, um, in the 20th century, really framed culture uh, in terms of anarchists, um, in terms of Virginia Woolf, um, whole idea of subjectivity being up for question thanks to Heisenberg and Einstein. So you're at this seminal point again, and to be a real cultural force in society, you need to join up with art. So it's art plus science plus technology equals culture. I literally wrote that, didn't know anybody, sent it to the head of um, press, James Gillis, and then on the Friday, and then on the Monday, I got a phone call saying, fantastic, when can you start? And what I proposed to do was do a feasibility study for three months, uh, funded by the UK government, because they were the funder of my fellowship. And I was just going to go there. And I just jumped on a plane and there I was for three months. And I suppose at the end of the three months, um, I'd done a really in-depth dive into the people, place and culture of CERN. Um, so I understood what was feasible and what wasn't feasible and how the organization worked and um, gave them a proposal uh, a week before the second switch on. Um, all the directors were around the table. Um, I'd been told that the LHC director was particularly fierce and I should be warned about that. Anyway, they all loved it and literally went, we love this. Uh, it's at the right time. It's wonderful. There are only two catches. One, we won't fund it, <laughs> the programme. And number two, we want you to do it. So that's how it began. So I created my own job, basically. But one that they wouldn't fund. And so how was it supported? Well, they've, uh, the director general funded my salary. Uh, as long as he was director general, he funded me my salary out of what is known as special projects budget, which all director generals have as a gift for doing the world's most impossible job, basically in charge of, you know, 680 institutions around the world, uh, 120 different countries. Um, so to do the most impossible job, there's the carrot. So I was his special project. So I was the first um, cultural specialist at CERN, uh, first one to be connected. Um, and so that's how that happened. And then the rest uh, which happened was me fundraising. So basically I was fundraising and, and uh, partnership building um, very intensely for my first year, 2010 to 2011. So I started in April, 2010, yeah. So that was the main day job was, I've got this idea for an arts project that could be done at CERN. First I have to go and finance it somehow. 
yes, so 2010 to 2011, I was, that's what I was doing. I was working out the finances, seeing what would land, raising. So in the first year, I got the interest of us Electronica Lintz um, to be a co-partner in the Collide uh, programme which I designed uh, very specifically to meet the needs of artists, but also to meet the needs of physicists. And I got the city and canton of Geneva. Uh, they stepped forward to be funders, even though I was, at that stage, my French was appalling and um, I was pitching to them and you could see they were thinking, oh, who is this person? Um, but I always began with a piece of French saying, I am like a snail in a forest, please forgive me. Uh, my French is so bad and I think because I was so um, humble but also I was so passionate uh, because I really felt, believed, knew that this programme was needed to happen now <laughs> at that point in time. It needed to start in 2010 and yeah and to do it I'd actually turned down of path, which was going to be a writer. Uh, I was on the verge of getting a book deal. Um, and I remember when I got the phone call from CERN saying, can you start in April? I was thinking, oh, so I have to choose between being a writer and this project, which one do I do? Uh, the book was going to be about nuclear history based on my experience in Maralinga, but in other places uh, around the world. Um, and, and then I thought, Hmm, these chances to create the thing which you know can work, which you have devised and know can work, never happen uh, that often. So take it. So that's hmm. what I did. Hmm. So I guess the big question would be the the way in which art and science can work together. Um, I mean, obviously you have a vision for that, but I imagine most people when they think of art and science, particularly bringing artists to an institution like CERN, would be that the artists could respond to the science in some way, or they could interpret and communicate the science in some way, or they could critique uh, technologies and science. Is there anything beyond that? Is there any way, for instance, in which the art is contributing to the science or, uh, or, or those sorts of things? Is there more of a dialogue than, you know, let's do some science over here and then we'll get artists to respond to that in some way? Well, yes, that's a question which comes up quite a lot. How much do the artists actually contribute to the science? And um, they do because they give you a different ways of looking and ways of looking at what you're doing. Um, when you're within a culture, a very fixed culture, which is very predetermined, which is going in one direction, um, if you get outsiders in, they give you different ways of looking at your practice, your work, and also your ways of observing. Um, because both uh, physics and art are ways of observing as well as ways of knowing the world. And I think that's really super important. Um, all the physicists I've worked with always said, we know this is having an impact on us. A, it's making us more human and aware of the outside world and a bit more humane and thinking a bit more about humanity, so that's fantastic, because they're very cloistered in a way, um, because they're so passionate about what they do. They're very, very cloistered and fixed, um, uh, even though they've got multiple skills and multiple interests. Um, um, and they also said, some scientists like James Wells said to me, I know this is going to impact on my theory and my later down the line, but I can't quantify it, I can't say what it is, 
but I know it's impacted and influenced me and it will express itself in some way. So to what extent do the cliches and stereotypes about both artists and scientists hold up in the real world? Are they like you imagine them to be? How do you imagine them to be? Well, you, you imagine scientists as very, like you say, very focused, very um, completely analytical. Let's go in, in that respect. So the scientists are all very analytical and the artists are all very kind of interpretive and creative. And is the world divided neatly like that uh, in your experience? No, no, the world isn't <laughs> neatly divided like that. I mean, you know, uh, the artist uh, Rio Giacchida, who is um, the, art- the final artist in residence, Collide Residence, Uh, who I worked with, the international one, Uh, he, I mean, he's so analytical, (laughs) super analytical, as well as poetic. And equally, you can get very poetic and extraordinary um, physicists, uh, particularly in the theory end, because they're the ones who think beyond the paradigm. And talking to them about other worlds, um, they will literally say, yeah, there are other worlds. You know, we can't disprove it. Therefore, there can be other worlds. So you're kind of taken into this kind of major philosophical and uh, theoretical world. Um, which is really fascinating. Um, so, so yeah, like everything, it's much more complicated. Of course, you meet stereotypes, but equally, you'll meet the things outside. Sure. Yeah. So, what's the value in this for an independent observer? If I'm not the scientist and I'm not the artist, and I'm coming along and I'm experiencing this as a member of the general public, what do I take away with me from that? Mm, as a gen- yes, as a member of the general public, um, it's all about uh, learning about the world. How are we discovering the world and who does it and how do they do it? And I think in some ways there was a photograph which was done by Gilles Jobin, who did an intervention in the physicist's um, library where he turned a somersault in front of a uh, physicist who was studying. And the amazing thing is the physicist never moved, never looked up, never saw saw him, <laughs> in inverted commas. And for me, that shows the passion of scientists. And I think that's also the magic of learning that these scientists are so passionate about discovering um, the beginning of the universe and the nature of nature. Uh, which forms us and uh, the particles which form every piece of matter in this world, that for the general public to get in touch with that, rather than for it to be something lofty, remote, uh, abstract, disconnected, uh, humanizes it for them and puts them in touch of with what science really is. It's a mode of discovery a really beautiful mode of discovery. And so, like, in these days, we hear a lot about uh, science and the search for truth being devalued uh, in our cultures as something that is not perhaps as uh, as highly revered as it might be, particularly in, in establishing facts about the world and, and what we believe about the world and the idea that facts can be you know, differently held between different groups of people. To what extent does art need to come in and go, no, no, let me let me communicate this in a way that everybody will understand, or or even to be a cheerleader for inverted commas science and truth? That's an interesting question, um, because artists traditionally question the scientific truth and the notion of truth. 
Um, so that's what they tradition they do in terms of artistic, uh, in terms of contemporary artistic approaches. Um, so, and they often have that role of being the kind of canary in the coal mine um, who calls things out, um, as well as looking at the implications for humanity. I've always argued that in a way, artists are the great humanitarians because they're looking at things, okay, from their own particular ego, but they're looking at the implications in terms of what are the implications on society and how can this be? Um, so I would turn that around. In terms of being cheerleaders for the idea of truth and science, um, i.e. that would be communication, and that's, that's a communication and illustration job. That is as old as the hills, basically. That is as old as the history of art and science. Uh, art has played that role in the past of illustrating and communicating science and being its handmaiden. But what I do is doing it in a different way. That's all. Um, there are many different strands. It's something which I've also said, there are no, there's no one way of doing art and science. Um, so yes, there are, there is a role for artists to communicate um, science and what it's doing. And that is important, but that, that's a very different one from the one I do. Yeah. There is a flip side to this impulse as well, which I guess you'd characterize as the black mirror impulse, which is basically science scary, technology bad, um, future terrifying, uh, and, and that as the sort of artistic creative media response to, you know, all of the developments that are happening at seemingly an increasing rate. It's the, the critiquing role of art, uh, I guess you would sort of characterize that as. Is that an important aspect of, of your work as well to sort of go, no, wait, what does this mean if AI can X, Y, Z? Yeah, so, yeah, there's different ways of looking at that. So the show, the recent show I co-curated at um, HEC, at the House of Electronic Arts in Basel, very much was looking at the implications of technology from a particular angle, uh, the rise of technology and surveillance culture and what it was doing, what it is potentially going to do. And we did it with the help of 20 artists. So, for example, the wonderful artist Lucy McRae um, built this extraordinary, uh, it was a new commission for us, uh, created this extraordinary contraption called the Survival Raft. Um, so it was in the colours of life-saving raft, and it was a raft you crawled into and then it inflated and then deflated and hugged you. And the purpose of this piece really is to say, here we are with technology, we are isolated at this moment. She was creating it in her studio in LA during COVID. Um, what happens if at the end of the day or the end of the universe, the only thing we have left to hug us is technology because the raft in the end hugs you? And how does that feel? And what is it like to be without human touch? So 
the show, the exhibition explored many questions and that's one of them. And I think that's one of the roles, as I said, of artists to raise those questions in people's mind, to actually start humanizing technology and the implications of technology. So the public can understand what the implications are when they go to an art show, they feel it through their senses as well as their intellect. And then they can think about what the implications are. So, yeah. It's really interesting because the, the way that you've been talking about it sounds like the role of the scientist is to find answers and the role of the artist is to come along and then generate questions from those answers. Is, is that fair? And is there a, a sort of a cycle to that? Uh, I think that's probably my approach. So as I said, that's my approach is that one, uh, very much so. But there are other art science uh, approaches um, where the artists and scientists work together to find solutions for global issues and global problems. And that's again, is a great art science strand, just as important as the illustration and communication art science strand. Um, but this is the one I'm particularly interested in. I'm interested, as I said, <laughs> right at the beginning of this interview, I'm so interested in the implications of uh, science and technology uh, and any form of new knowledge which can come out of the humanities as well, whether it's post-structuralism or whatever. Um, yeah, implications for humanity and what it means for us now um, and in the future. Yeah. So I'm ethically driven, I suppose, in my approach to art science. I'm, I'm interested in the, the impact and the ethics behind things. Well, it's interesting that you raise that there are different threads of this. I mean, you, you curated the Entangle exhibition at the Bill Musette here in Umeå, and there was a book that came out with that in which you talk about how science and art are not a coherent single movement. What are the main threads, do you think? Are they identifiable? There are, there are movements within science or sci-art, as, uh, as some people call it. Yeah, there, there are multiple movements. As, as we've just discussed, there's, you know, art is communication illustration of science art which is inspired by the science and uses the science as a jumping off point artists and scientists working together to solve a common problem there is science which is used as art by artists so they create installations based on scientific apparatus i mean you could go on i did a lecture in fact at the exploratorium which is the museum of art science and human perception uh, in san francisco it's the granddaddy of all science museums and i gave a lecture and said there are 12 and then at the end of it people ran up and i listed the 12 and then people ran up at the end and went no no we've got another eight <laughs> <laughs> and it was just like and that makes you realize and know that the art science field is actually broad it's not a coherent movement it's got many many strands it's network it's like a it's like a it's probably like a rhizome it just spreads and spreads and spreads um and it just depends which branch you stand on. I've, I've stood on multiple branches in my time. So I have stood on the um, communications and illustration side, um, but I've also stood on the finding a solution to a common problem side, as well as the other one, uh, which is the science as the jumping off point of the imagination, which is very, which is probably the one I'm best known for. 
And that's certainly what Build Musette, the exhibition in Tangle, showed how physics in particular has inspired those 20 international artists, only, but there are many, many more, uh, in their practice, in their approach to their practice, but also in what they do and how they look at the phenomena of the world. Right. Mm. I mean, Bill Musette is uh, essentially, it's an art gallery, art museum, uh, and you also work at science museums. Is there a, kind of a different approach when you go to these spaces, knowing what the context has been for what, you know, what is to come? Do you sort of take the science in an art direction or take the art in a science direction? Or is the thing that you do the thing that you do and you turn up and go, you know, actually, regardless of that context, this is my thing? No, 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 no. Totally adaptive. So it's all about being adaptive uh, in terms of approach. So different contexts have different needs entirely. Um, and that's the point. <laughs> that's like literally points like Arts at CERN that had a particular approach because of the organisation. Uh, CERN, fundamental research centre. Therefore, what better than having a fundamental research centre for artists as well? So, yes, so work at Build Museum was fascinating because um, I wanted to have um, things which explain some of the physics. So there would have been physicists um, describing the phenomena uh, in writing on the wall. So you could reflect on it. And very much they said very directly, no, we don't want that approach. And I thought, hmm. I can understand that. It's a contemporary art gallery, it's white cube. Um, therefore, to honour both and show how things happened, I created an audio diptych. So where, as you walk around, you can hear artists and scientists describing light from their different perspectives. Um, so yeah, so you have, for example, Sufujimoto, the architect, talking about what space means to him as an architect and talking about how it's terror, how outer space in particular is his ultimate terror because there's no density of air. And then you've got the physicist, Bill Gurdin, because saying space for her was always a dream as she was a child on a swing, swinging up to the stars. So, but then the, she goes into the physics of space. Um, so, and I actually think that made something much more beautiful for the exhibition. It showed, again, what I'm really obsessed with, different ways of looking at things. And from that, you, the public, whether you're reading it in the book or listening to the audio cloud, can see points of connection and also disconnection. And that's the importance really of arts and science, the disconnects, the connections, the gaps, the spaces in between where you can jump into new territory as well. Hmm. There are a couple of pieces in that exhibition that that really appealed to me, and maybe because there's, I guess, a joke in them as well. There's a sense of, at least, a sense of humour about it. One of them was the table, like the office desk and chair suspended, uh, sort of independent pendulums. And to me, I mean, I, I stared at that for such a long time, and I didn't know what if there was a message to be had from that, what that message was. But it was such a kind of a, a compelling thing to look at, but it was also humorous in a way. This was, you know, it was an office desk and chair independently suspended from the ceiling 
as pendulums um, and never quite connecting and, and always missing and always in motion. And I, I thought that was really interesting. But the other one was the actual neon sign that said entanglement on two floors and with a switch below it. And you approach it and you switch the switch on and off. And eventually it sort of dawns on you that you, what you're turning on and off is the sign on the other floor. And the, the, that engagement between those two things, I guess, says something about, you know, this idea of quantum entanglement and action at a distance and, and all those sorts of things. But actually it was that you could almost tell a joke in a, in a, in a physical way that, that sort of dawns on the audience as they engage with it. And I, I kind of like that as the humanizing aspect of uh, of what you do was was there sort of this deliberate um, bringing of a sense of humor to things that are very very seriously taken by very serious scientific minds uh, to sort of kind of I guess knock them about and go no 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 we sh- this, there's joy in this there's there's not just sort of you know uh, this is not just cerebral it can also be you know um, emotionally engaging. Well, I think playfulness is so important in human beings. (laughs) Uh, Play is the way we learn and the way we discover. So having art pieces which um, tap into your inner child again, which we should all be in touch with all the time, you know, that amazing playfulness. So yes, the Julius von Bismarck piece of freedom table democracy chair, uh, is fantastic because it is so playful. You're like, what the, what is going on here with these things swinging in space? What is this about? And then you read the title, the piece, and you go, oh, yes, it's about democracy and freedom. Oh, oh, oh. And then you think, but it's so, yeah, it really touches the heart as well, in a way, as well as the mind. And the same with Rafael Lozano Hemmer's entanglement piece, heart and mind touched through the senses uh, which art does, and also playfulness, perfect. And equally, Lucy McRae's piece, Survival Raft, just as playful, kind of intriguing you, tapping into your sense of curiosity. Mm. Well, we've talked about sort of the relationship between art and science and that art can bring something to science and artists can respond to the work of scientists, et cetera, et cetera. What's the value in collaboration? Putting them in the same room together, getting them to work together, getting them to do this process of discovery. What's the value in that? Uh, The value is literally different ways of knowing and different ways of uh, approaching things. Um, So, and I think that is fantastic. It's always about multiplicity of approaches, multiplicity of understanding, and also the experiences you bring. Um, And your engagement with technology, you have different appreciations and different ways of relating with technology. Um, So it's totally super important. Um, And I think more and more as we become much more, um, as we, well, as we carry on within our climate emergency, as well as all the other emergencies, uh, the works between arts and scientists collaborating together will become, is, is now actually, and should be now, even more um, prioritised. Yeah, it's interesting because a lot of the rhetoric that we have at the moment is about this idea of essential jobs. And in you've probably seen in, in uh, a study in Britain, you know, people were asked what are the essential jobs and rank them. And artist was the least essential of all the jobs. And it seems like what you're saying is, no, 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 that's uh, 
this is becoming really, really important in this uh, in this moment of, of uh, catastrophe in all sorts of directions. Yes, in terms of invention and coming up with ideas and approaches uh, to solving the issues, whether it's um, surveillance or whether it's um, and raising public awareness, uh, let alone coming up with solutions. Artists and scientists working together can move in that direction together. And I think the reason for that, uh, why artists are particularly important is because they have, they're allowed even, <laughs> they're allowed to use their imagination. And uh, scientists do use their imagination and do have an imagination. Uh, and in fact, they're becoming a bit more explicit about uh, the role imagination uh, plays in their their work for sent for the last two three centuries that's been derided to talk about or admit it, but artists for artists they're allowed to use their imagination, and this is where artists are crucial because they are the imagineers. Um, <laughs> so and I use imagineer as a, a purposeful word because with engineering fused with imagination because they are looking at ways of going beyond where we are in the world and changing the world or expressing things in a way which haven't been expressed before in that particular way. Um, and I do believe um, from my own background, you know, I did my postgrad degree in Mary Shelley and Percy Shelley. I am probably um, a total shelling because I do believe the imagination, I do believe in the imagination as a place of revolution, as a place of change, as a place of innovation. And so, yeah. It's interesting, Mary Shelley being one of the sort of the archetypes of uh, creativity, critiquing science and, and technology. Um, but all of these things sound very compelling and convincing to me and I guess that's because of you know the things that I'm interested in and, and so on but you have to make these arguments at a, at a policy level you you're advising to the European Commission and things like DG Connect and uh, the Joint Research Centres uh, the JRC how do you make these sorts of arguments at a policy level is it something that is warmly received or is it an uphill battle is this something that people get when you're speaking at that level well, it's, most recently I've been working with the JRC, which are the Joint Research Laboratories. There are seven environmental science uh, research and policy um, uh, laboratories across Europe. Um, and they're the driver of environmental policy for the EU. Um, and it's absolutely fantastic that they have embraced a cultural programme um, and believe in the role and the importance of artists in working with them um, and in terms of convincing they were actually convinced by CERN so <laughs> <laughs> they actually saw the CERN project and came to me and went Ariane we really want to create something um, here at the JRC and we can see how it works we can see how it has raised awareness um, within the public um, about um, CERN actually and physics and what they're doing and how the specialness of doing it in a different way in a creative way um, and we want to do something like that here so in terms of policy they had already seen how it had made those changes and I think these examples of 
how things work, luckily ricochet through our culture um, and stand as a witness of their own persuasion. So I didn't really need to persuade. I didn't need to persuade because they've been persuaded. <laughs> sure, yeah. sure. And by your own work to, to a large extent. Yeah, which, which is great. Yeah, yeah. My work with the scientists and artists at CERN, it's all of us together. It's a, it's a community. Um, you, I always believe it's everybody working together. Um, however much one person is in inverted commas the leader of it or initiator of it, it's always about people working together. And I couldn't have done it without um, the scientists um, and the artists at CERN and all the people who supported uh, the network, everything. So, yeah. Well, you're working at the top level of all of these things, as far as I can see. And unless, I mean, is there in your ambitions another step up that you would like to take? Uh, there's always, there's always, there's always some some new adventure, and uh, there's always something beyond. Yes, so I'm I'm that spirit basically. So I'm one of those people um, who I always define as explorers. Uh, you always want to go beyond. You're um, always curious. So yes, there are things I would love to do, and which I will do. Um, so we will wait and see. Yeah. Sure. It sounds like there's something in there you're not quite allowed to talk about, but um, we'll skip lightly over that. There was a job advertised at Alto University recently, head of radical creativity. Are we going to see more of these sorts of things? Is that is that now a job that exists in the world? I thought that was my dream job. You, you have to speak Finnish, unfortunately, don't you? Yes, you have to speak Finnish. And I kind of even wrote to the dean and said, do you really have to speak Finnish? Because <laughs> uh, I thought, yeah, that is the best job in the entire world, um, uh, director of uh, radical creativity. Because, as I said, that's what I believe in. I believe in creativity and the imagination and uh, the radicalism it can do. Um, so, um, hopefully, yes, we will see more of those jobs. And hopefully, Alto's leading the way by being the first one to put its flag in the sand and say, look, this is needed. This is what society needs. And uh, Alto's brilliant at being ahead of the curve. So um, yes, again, that's another watch this space. And uh, Sure. So no thoughts of returning to the book? Returning to the book. Oh, gosh, that was funny. When you said the book, I couldn't remember what the book was. Um, oh, uh, there's another book, unfortunately, which is preceded the nuclear book um, has taken over. So the nuclear book is somewhere in the past at the moment. Um, we'll probably turn into a novel at some point, but there's another book which I am interested in doing, which is much more about art and science. So, um, so again, it's a kind of watch this space on that one. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, I look forward to it. Ariane, it's been an absolute pleasure talking and, and really fascinating. And I hope we get to do this more often. Really good to talk. Thank you. Well, lovely to see you as always, Andrew. And thank you so much for everything. Cheers. Till the next time. <laughs> that's Ariane Koch. And that's the MTF podcast. You can find Ariane online at ariannekoch.com. That's A R I A N E K O E K. 
mtflabs.com. And you can find MTF Labs at mtflabs.net, spelled how it sounds. And at MTF Labs all over the social universe. As usual, thanks to the team, Jen Kukuchka, Sergio Castillo and Mars Staten, Sivan Talmor and Airtone for the music, and Run Dreamer for the MTF audio logo you're about to hear again. You have a great week, stay safe, and we'll talk soon. Cheers. Thank <laughs> you.